Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture today is from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want to extend my, uh, or add my welcome to you, uh, Grace Church. We're glad that you have joined us uh, today for worship. Um, our thoughts are with uh, Pastor Aaron, who finds himself in uh, Israel at this point, and along with uh, Bob and Corey, and I think Kathy Kambik is there as well. Uh, and uh, so we will be praying for them in the next uh, couple days as they... Uh, really take in what what happens uh, i think it's going to be really exciting to see what it does to pastor aaron he's going to come back with all kinds of stories and um and a new set of uh, other than uh food references uh, for us to enjoy so that'll be good yeah uh i was thinking of the beginning of my sermon uh was kind of mirroring where it was that uh andrew left us here in his prayer or was praying about Ukraine. No doubt uh, it's occupied our minds in a, in a tremendous way these past few weeks. What a sad an awful tragedy uh, is unfolding over there. But as I was um, listening to the different news reports that have been uh, addressing what's happening there, uh, there's, a, there's a word that stood out to me. It's the word shocking that is often used to describe what's happening there. The headlines often contain words like shocking declaration or shocking photos of the devastation in, uh, that this e e uh, invasion has caused. And I would say, uh, no doubt, these are accurate assessments of what is cur currently happening in Ukraine. Uh, yet there's another sense I want to call your attention to this morning, uh, the sense 
of this whole picture from the perspective of the followers of Jesus. In some sense, it comes as no surprise to us if we understand accurately the truth of the Bible. For as we read the scriptures, we come face to face with the reality of life in a broken world where conflicts are not only possible, conflict is inevitable. War shouldn't really come as a shock to us. Thinking of James chapter 4, where we hear these words, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and you quarrel. My friend Walt and I uh, meet on a regular basis um, to discuss all parts of life and to be able to pray together. And one of the things that Walt spends a lot of time doing is creating these magnificent spreadsheets of all sorts of um, uh, stuff I don't worry too much about. But he does. And I like it. He'll share it with me often. And one of the things that he shared recently that I found especially intriguing was uh, he did some research on conflicts in the world. And he discovered that there are 41 noteworthy conflicts that are taking place around the globe even as we speak, eight of which are considered to be major wars. Most of these battles are civil in nature. That's kind of an ironic phrase, isn't it? They are conflicts within their own country. Now, what is it that precipitates these wars? God tells us that human beings burn with impure passions, that is, lusts or over-desires that are actually at war within all of us. Some, somebody wants something that they cannot have. And so what do they do? They fight. They quarrel. Conflicts ensue. It's a universal problem, which the Bible tells us is the direct result of the entrance of sin into the world. Now, I'd like to be able to say that it's just a problem out there in the world. But all of us know that's not the case because the church is not immune from it either. If you were to look at the various subjects that the Bible addresses in the New Testament, you will find that unity is a common topic. In fact, nine New Testament books give space to the teaching on the need for peace and harmony among the followers of Jesus. God is very aware that living in agreement with another is challenging at best. And sadly, conflict dominates the landscape of many a church. Tony Evans summed it up very well when he said this, whenever you put two sinners together, you will have irreconcilable differences down the line. Churches are full of sinners, and sinners are the problem. You right now are sitting next to a sinner, 
and you also are occupying the seat of a sinner. That is one thing that all of us have in common. There's unity in that, isn't there? In my opinion, in the 21 or 28 years, rather, I've been at Grace Church, largely, God in his grace has spared this particular congregation from what I'll call unity-breaking conflict for the most part. Yet there has been some conflict that has had to be dealt with along the way. But none to the point or to the extent that our unity is what this church, or our lack of unity, let's say, is what this church would be known for, at least of what I'm aware. Again, I said it was in my opinion, and it certainly has nothing to do uh, with me. I'm not the one that has produced any kind of unity. We'll, we'll learn more about that in a minute. But I, I do believe this. It would be a huge mistake for us to rest on our laurels if that is the case. For us to assume that we'll go conflict-free. And so I believe that the challenge that we have that Amy read for us this morning is something that we should embrace, something that we should explore, something we should think about very seriously because our unity is at stake all the time. I guess it'd be important as we're going to talk about uh, Ephesians chapter 4 to understand really what Paul has been saying in the first three chapters of this book. And there he lays a very rich theological foundation for what he is going to say in chapters 4 through 6. So he begins by laying out all this doctrine in three chapters, and then 4 through 6, he tells us how to apply it. And that is his constant pattern. If you look at his epistles, he puts forth truths about God and then uses these truths as motivation for whatever teaching he goes on to promote. Or you can say it in a lot of different ways. Doctrine first leads to practice. Or truth leads to responsible living. Or teaching gives way to application. But that is Paul's general pattern. Now, because he talks about doctrine first, does not mean that it's more important than practice. Because people who focus on doctrine, and I'm one who really enjoys uh, doctrine, to look into it, to study it, to be able to talk about it. But doctrine alone, I could be tremendously intellectually astute when it comes to doctrine. But if I have not learned to apply it, I'm in big trouble. Of course, there's the other side of the coin. I'm reminded of a person who once told me, I don't do doctrine. You don't do doctrine. Boy, that, that actually stunned me when I heard it. Uh, but those who focus on practice may give, uh, they put all their emphasis on the experience, let's say, and the feelings that they have, leave themselves in danger of drifting off in any which direction, especially theological perspectives that are not founded in the scripture. So there needs to be a balance between doctrine and practice. 
And when Paul writes his letters to the churches, he's reaching for such a balance. Teach a truth and then apply it. And that's exactly what he does in this book. And so Paul composes the beginning chapters of Ephesians with some incredible doctrine for his readers to consider. And he points out to these Gentile believers that they have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. That they have been adopted into God's family. That they've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Then he goes on to say, you who were once dead in your sins have now been made alive in Christ by God's grace and you've been joined together into one body. You're no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but now in Christ you are one flesh, one new man. No longer aliens or strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. All these things are of no small matter. They're of incredible importance. And it's wonderfully encouraging for them to hear it. Such lofty and splendid truth of the work of God as Paul is is talking about it, actually leads him to break into this moving doxology that he gives at the end of chapter 3. For God has brought unity, he says, by bringing sinners into close relationship with himself and making them his family such that each one actually carries God's name. That's huge. And that's why he gives that big doxology. Unity in oneness is a wonderful reality to be enjoyed by every believer and follower of Jesus. Now, it's a reality in this, that we don't have to create unity. We don't have to. You're hearing a a message today about unity and how essential it is. But we're not going to be able to to create it. It already has been created. It exists for all the children of God because God has provided the unity in which his family is to live. Unity isn't something to be made. Unity is something to be kept. Now, this doctrinal truth concerning unity is precisely that which the apostle Paul puts forward as the basis of his teaching. And he begins by saying, therefore, meaning in verse 1, by the way, not now you're going to look in your Bible because you're going to see it there in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's interesting uh, that he starts... Uh, with this little phrase referring to himself, he says, it's me, Paul, talking to you. Mind you, he's been talking for uh, um, all this time up to this moment. And he says, hey, by the way, it's me, Paul. It's like me at this point. Say, oh, by the way, I'm Tim. I'm glad that you're here today. And uh, I'm, I'm going to share this with you. Why in the world did Paul do that anyway? Why would he say, I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord? I think he's adding a little bit of strength to what he's uh, going to say to them. He's reminding them 
of who it is that's talking to them. It is Paul, the same one, who at the moment that he is writing is actually a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is physically in chains. And yet he is bound that way because of his love for the gospel and his loyalty to Jesus Christ. That is what uh, has cost him, actually, the privilege of uh, being free. He's been enslaved, if you will, for the gospel. In other words, his own call to the gospel has implications that he has accepted. I suppose he's saying to them, I've accepted these implications. How about you? Do you accept the implications of following Christ? Well, if you do, then I, Paul, urge you to do this. Walk in a manner worthy of their calling. That's an interesting little phrase there. What is the calling to which they have been called? Well, we know as we read the the scriptures, especially if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 or so, you'll find out that God has made them in Christ to be a new man, a new creation. And we learn that the old has passed away and the new has come. And this new creation demands that their lives are to be lived in a worthy manner. Worthy. Interesting word again. Worthy. What does it mean? Well, it means to have worth equal to one's position. And so if you are going to fight a worthy opponent, then you're going to fight somebody who is about the same level as what you are. You're equal. You're equal in strength and power. If you're going to work for a worthy wage, you're going to get paid equally for the work that you put out. Um, my, oh boy, don't get, don't get us started, but when we go to certain places to eat or whatever and you order something and it doesn't come back, I sometimes wonder the worth of the person that is providing the meal for me. Maybe they're getting paid more than they're worth. They're getting an unworthy wage. Is that it? That's the idea of worthy. The way that you live, Paul says, will line up or will be in keeping with all that you have been given. Church is called, um, well, it's actually the term ecclesia, which means called out ones. As the church of Jesus Christ, we have been chosen or called to a mission for God. And that means that we aren't given the space to live any which way we want. We've been called to this. God has made a call upon our lives, and he chose us purposefully to accomplish something for him, namely, that our lives will in every way reflect his glory, that we will look like Jesus in the way that we live. And so it matters how we live. We carry his name. One of the things my dad taught me from the time I was very little. And uh, I remember particularly as uh, we grew to be into middle school and high school, my father would every morning make us breakfast. It was very, very nice of him to do that. If you're listening, Dad, you know, thanks for all that. I think of it now. Um, But one of the things he would say to us as we walked out the door, I'll never forget, 
He says, Timothy, remember who you are and where you live. You know, first couple times he said that, I, I was halfway down the road before I said, what in the world is he talking about? Remember whose I am and where I live? Of course, I'm me, Timothy. Of course, he, what he's talking about is the fact that I bear his name. So it matters how I live. Everything that I do, in some sense, is a reflection on him. Timothy, remember who, who it is that you belong to and where you live. But there was more to that as I talked to him. He would say, not only are you a Cowan, but you are a Christian. And you really belong to God. And so it matters deeply how you live. As you're walking through life, do you remember whose you are and where you live? Are you walking in a worthy manner? Paul goes on to share two characteristics in the opening chapter that will demonstrate a worthy, a worthy walk. And he says two things. A worthy walk will be displayed in the unity that we have in our relationships with one another. And secondly, a worthy walk will demonstrate purity in our daily living. When these two things are present in the life of a Christian, he or she will appear unique or set apart from the culture which surrounds them. These features will shine as light in a dark world, thus revealing the glory of God. It matters how we live. Now, he's going to deal with purity later on. We're not going to do that today. You can breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, but we're only going to deal with the first one, which is the idea of unity. And it begins in verse 2. And Paul's going to lay out for us uh, five essential qualities of unity. And we're going to zip through them really fast today. Don't worry, we're going to land this plane. And it's going to happen uh, fairly quickly. When we think of these essentials, it's important for us to remember something. It's not simply essentials for each individual. And that is important. But it's not simply just for us to live these out. It's important, Paul says, for them to be seen corporately in his church. Because that's really who he's talking to. He's talking to all of us. Are we a church? Is Grace Church a place where we see these essential uh, things of unity? And if not, why not? And what can we do? To make them a reality for us. What do these essentials look like? There's five of them. You'll see them beginning in verse 2. You are called to live a worthy walk in all humility, he says. Humility. Now, humility, John Stott called, uh, defines it this way. I like his definition. Lowliness of mind. The humble recognition of the worth and value of other people. The humble mind which was in Christ and led him to empty himself and become a servant. That's how he defines it. Humility is the very opposite of pride. 
Now, we're not going to spend much time talking about pride today. Pastor Aaron's done a wonderful job, as we've studied the book of Revelation, of discussing pride and its dangers. You'll remember the church in Laodicea. It was warned about its pride. Remember that church uh, got to the place where they thought they had no need of anything, including God, that it was totally self-sufficient. They were arrogant. Pride is uh, a very dangerous thing that needs to be rooted out from among us. Now look, humility just doesn't come uh, naturally to us. It certainly was antithetical to the Greek mind. That's the day and time in which uh, the apostle is writing. Pride, or rather humility, was actually seen as a sign of weakness. Submissiveness was that which should only be seen in a lowly slave. It was considered far beneath them to display any level of humility. We can say to ourselves or to each other, boy, I'm glad that... um, Well, I I recognize that the the Greeks had a really difficult time with that, but that's really not something that we struggle with, is it? I was watching uh, basketball yesterday. One of the major ways in which uh, we see this problem is when somebody makes some kind of a fantastic play, and then what do they do after they make their big play? They, They taunt somebody else. And they stand over them, if you will, and say, look what I just did. Wasn't that a wonderful play I made? Well, you may say to yourself, well, now listen, that's not something, I don't even care for sports. I don't play basketball. Oh, by the way, I just remembered as I looked over to this, uh, this area here, I recognized that I was guilty of the very same thing when I beat Pastor Taylor in, in horse. And I, I stood over him and I taunted him. And he, he was, a, I'll tell you about that later. But that was a, that was a lot of fun. But I realized that I was actually tongue-in-cheek uh, teasing about it. But it's a reality in the culture we live. And we're, we are tempted to be part of that kind of um, behavior. I'll throw to you maybe an example that uh, is a little closer to home. And that's going to insult probably three-quarters of our congregation. What do I care? Um, my time here is limited. But I, I will tell you this, that uh, uh, it's important for us to consider this. Think about social media for a minute. By the way, I don't have a Facebook account for the first reason is I wouldn't even know how to sign up for one. Not really uh, computer savvy and I certainly don't feel like I have a whole lot of time to, uh, to read all the stuff that's on Facebook, let alone do I think that you care about what I had for breakfast. And well, many times, I'm not sure what I had for breakfast. Karen has to remind me. And I ask her at least three or four times a day what we're having for dinner. And the poor thing is the same thing I told you an hour ago. If you think about social media, you're going to find out that there's a huge spirit of pride and a lack of humility. Individuals today spend, I'm told, uh, 
untold hours touting their latest achievements in an apparent attempt to prop up their self-esteem. Or we see evidence of folks contributing their opinions about everything under the sun in an endeavor to be liked by someone else. Someone else who apparently shares the same repulsive view as their own. Look, true humility acknowledges that the things that are of value are not trivial things that we do in life. Or the people that we travel with. What we think about politics, what we think about sports, or a host of other mundane things which seem to occupy our attention when it comes to life in this world is not all that important. At least if I am to understand the apostle who writes uh, kind of this scathing response. Uh, listen to this in, um, I guess it's, uh, let me see, or AF, Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What do we have that we did not receive? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. All that I have has come from God. Why in the world would I taunt that? It's not about me. It's about God. I was trying to be a little clever here. Um, maybe, maybe you'll give me a chuckle. I'd appreciate it if you did. I said, get off of Facebook and get on Gracebook. The grace book that I'm talking about is the word of God. That's where we should be spending our time. That should be our focus. Because in those pages of that book, we learn stuff about ourselves that we need to know and be very aware of. We are nothings and we are nobodies that only because of God's grace are we somebody. That's it. He takes his righteousness and he imputes it to us. That is, he sees his righteousness as belonging to us. And in a wonderful way, he sees our sin as belonging to him. And if that's the case, who are we to boast about anything except knowing Christ? If we are to display true unity, we will look like Jesus, who thought about the value and worth, not of himself, but of others. So much so that he gave his life for them. You see the difference? And whenever it is that we lack humility in life, 
We are putting at stake the unity that we can have in God's church. John Stott says of pride that it is that which lurks behind all discord. If you want to have problems, then be a church full of pride. All right, look, we're just about out of time, so um, we're going to have to really fly now. We've got four more to do. Another essential of unity is gentleness. Gentleness is the word for uh, strength under control. It's uh, another word for meekness. Meekness, we remember, is in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek. Meekness is a mild-spirited self-control. It is a picture of a powerful workhorse that has been tamed. Now know this, a tamed horse is as strong and powerful as an untamed horse. The difference is that the tamed horse has submitted itself to the control of the master. That's what gentleness is about. Now is gentleness what we are known for? Is it that which characterizes us as a church? Perhaps the best test for our gentleness is what are we like when people disagree with us? What is it that we are like when we don't get our way? When people say things that we don't like to hear, do we get defensive or lash out to preserve ourselves? A gentle word, we're told, turns away what? Wrath. If Christian unity is to be found in the church, is it, important that it is very important that we become gentle, careful, tender-hearted, ready to forgive, and move on in love for the sake of unity of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Gentleness. Third, patience. Patience is the ability to endure negative circumstances with calmness. It is being long-tempered. Patience is remaining constant, even when prolonged irritation is present. How do we practice it? Goodness, I think of a great example. Um, Jerry's sitting in the back there. I picture myself standing in front of Jerry um, Fury and giving him one of these babies, you know. And by the way, I've done it many a time. You know what patience is? Patience is that he doesn't tear me limb from limb. He's enduring me. That's why I'm standing here to tell you about it. Patience is willing or an unwillingness for him to tear me apart. And it's a readiness to endure the nonsense that I give him. Patience is one of those virtues, by the way, which we long for in others. We want them to treat us with patience, but it's something that we are probably short on ourselves. And our unity will always be compromised by short fuses. You ever lit a firecracker with a short fuse? You know, we didn't want to waste it. I remember this when we lived in Alaska. We'd come up with these cherry bombs and all, and uh, invariably one of them would fizzle out and there'd be just a little tiny bit left there. 
Have you ever tried to light one of the richest smiling? He's done it. Um, when you light a firecracker with a short fuse, you're bound to get hurt. And I've noticed something in my own home when I'm impatient, it affects everybody around me. Everybody. When I huff and I puff and I blow the house in, I'm agitated. And I'm really uncomfortable with things. And I make known that I am. I notice that it messes with the unity of my home. God calls us to be patient with one another for the sake of that unity. Look, we're very different people. And it's hard for us to be patient with people who are not like us. But that's what he calls us to be. There's another uh, essential unity. He says, bearing with one another in love. It's the idea of forbearance, actually. It's a willingness to give even when it receives nothing in return. To bear one another is to make allowances for the failures and mistakes of others. There's a willingness to move ahead even when others are making it difficult by their incompetence. We deal with a lot of incompetence, don't we? And forbearance says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live with the incompetence of others. See, I have to keep my mouth shut about what goes on when I go out to eat. It's about not having an expectation for another at that moment. You see, it's, it's being willing to let it go. It's about absorbing negativity. It's about having a short memory. We love it when people forget our shortcomings, but we struggle to return favor. Isn't it wonderful that God does not treat us as our sins deserve? The biggest enemy of forbearance is a sense of entitlement. We really do think that we deserve better. I should not have to put up with this. How blind we are. Because that which promotes forbearance is actually love. The differences of how we do things, how we see things, who we are in personality and temperament are always going to be present. We must learn the art of hanging in there with each other. We must look at these differences as God's way of developing us into the kind of godly people that he desires. That's what he wants. Final essential to unity is seen in our eagerness to maintain it. The idea here is that unity is desired so much that you go to great lengths to avoid dissension. One of the things my grandfather actually taught me, this little verse, and I can't even remember the circumstances under which he shared it with me, but I've never forgotten it either. It's a verse in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much lies within you. Now, the, see, now that's the key. Well, I just can't possibly do that. Not based on what they did to me. We're capable of far more than we think. It's that we don't really want to. 
right? Again, entitlement is part of this. We're, we're, we're entitled to more, better behavior. Now look, there are times when circumstances demand that we deal head on with things. There are some sins, for instance, that should not or cannot be overlooked. Now, these occur, though, when God's commands have been violated. But the truth is, many of the times that we're really upset with somebody else is not because they violated God's commands. It's because they broke my rule. You touched my things. Don't do that. You moved it. My goodness, you, uh, I have, uh, this is uncomfortable. I have to confess to you. I clean up after you guys. I don't understand. I, I, I help Karen in that process of vacuuming. Uh, some of you guys pick your nails and leave it on the floor. Yeah. I often wonder, why in the world is that there? It wasn't there last week. Am I willing to suck it up and understand that what motivates me is a love for Christ's church? Isn't it wonderful that God has given me another day to be able to express my love for him by cleaning up after your fingernails? See, that tends not to be how we think. Or maybe it is something we should consider. Let's make every effort to maintain the unity that God has provided for us, and it will take diligence on our part. And it's never assumed that it will be easy. There is sinfulness alive in each one of us that needs to be put to death. And the biggest sin that I can think of for me is the sin of selfishness, because I tend to put myself first. The enemy of humility is pride. The enemy of gentleness is harshness. The enemy of patience is irritation. The enemy of bearing with one another is intolerance. Each of these enemies is or will lead us to sin. It's the bond of peace that will sustain us, however. You know... Every now and then, Karen and I will sit down or talk about sitting down. It usually doesn't happen to play a game of Dutch Blitz. Why I do this to myself, I do not know. Karen is in every way faster than me. She thinks faster than me. She moves faster than me. She's faster. But I say, let's play Dutch Blitz then. And then I proceed to get wailed upon. But here's the part of it that just blows my mind as I think about it today. Do you realize that when she beats me, one of the thoughts that probably, by God's grace, doesn't come out of my mouth, which I'd pay for dearly, is that I think that she's cheated. How can she do? She must be doing something that's not by the rules. I make her out to be something she is not. 
And when I do that, I am showing something about myself. The problem is not outside of me. The problem is not with Karen. The problem is not with the cards. The problem's in my heart. I want something that I cannot have. I want to win. And so I quarrel. And I'm even willing to destroy her in my mind. Come on, Tim, it's, it's Dutch Blitz. Or is it really a picture of what's in my heart? Sin left unchecked will lead to disunity. And it's no different in God's church. It's the same. The biggest problems in achieving the unity that God desires for us at Grace Church are those things which are actually in our heart. It's sin. They are not caused by someone else. Our problem with unity cannot be blamed on COVID or the pandemic and the difficulties that it has uh, brought to us. The problem of unity at Grace Church is not political turmoil in the, of the times in which we live. It is not. The problem is not with the group of people that God has assembled here to worship each Lord's Day. The problem is not in the style of worship that we give to God. It's not in the, the worship leaders who lead us. It's not in the participants who take, uh, take part in it. That's not the problem. The enemy of unity is a heart problem. It's wanting things the way we want it. It's a problem of sin. Our biggest issue of sin at Grace Church is something that resides in our hearts. And in order for God's church to experience the unity that he desires, we must confess that sin that stands in our way. And we must be willing, uh, dare I say, willing to play Dutch Blitz and lose because I stink at it, right? Because God has gifted Karen with things that she has not gifted me with. It's to accept each other it's to love each other. It's to endure. 
is to be patient and kind with one another. God, help us to be that kind of people. Father, I pray that you will continue to use the words of the word of God to touch our hearts and cause us to repent of those things that needs to be repented of so that we will be the people that you desire for us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.